You're listening to Climate Rising, an official podcast of Harvard Business School's Business and Environment Initiative. Before we get into today's episode, let me tell you about a new HBS online course called Business and Climate Change that we've just launched. In this five-week asynchronous online course, you'll learn the tools and tactics companies around the world are using to become more resilient to droughts, floods, wildfires, and storms, and how they're engaging in mitigation to reduce their emissions. This course enables you to leverage those insights to inform your own organization's strategy. Learn more and apply at the HBS online website or at hbs.me slash business and climate change. Now, on to Climate Rising. Roads today, laws today, regulations today all assume we will all forever own a car and drive it ourselves, generally drive it alone. I'm David Abel, and this is Climate Rising, a podcast from Harvard Business School that looks at the challenges and opportunities that climate change presents for businesses. Today, we'll be looking at the impact of transportation on climate change. In the United States, emissions from cars, trucks, airplanes, and other transportation account for nearly a third of the nation's emissions, more than any other source. The solutions will require us to change how often we drive cars and the types of fuels we use. They'll require investments in public transportation and ultimately autonomous vehicles. They will also likely include more carpooling and ride-hailing services, which could ultimately combine a lot of the potential solutions. Some companies have started making significant efforts to bring about this new world. Uber, now a global behemoth, has more than 110 million users of its service in about 800 metropolitan areas around the world. The company has touted its ride-hailing services as a way to reduce traffic and emissions, but some research has found the opposite has occurred. Do more ride-hailing services mean fewer people using public transportation, biking, or walking? Or does it mean fewer people buying cars and more people sharing rides using options such as Uber Pool? And how long will it be before their vision of a new transportation system becomes reality? One in which robots ferry us around in zero emissions cars. Joining us to discuss how ride-hailing services are affecting the climate are Adam Gromis, Public Policy Manager for Sustainability and Environmental Impact at Uber, and Ashley Willens, an Assistant Professor at Harvard Business School. Adam Gromis, what does it mean to oversee sustainability at Uber? What do you do exactly, and what are some of the main ways Uber seeks to reduce its climate footprint? Uh, The question I'm trying to answer is the one that you posed earlier. Is Uber good for the environment? It's as simple as that, unfortunately enough for me. Getting to the answer is more complicated and, and nuanced enough for them to employ me to try and figure it out. So I, uh, for since we're at HBS today, I decided to break down my work into uh, the five Ms, what I call the five Ms, classic business school framework. First, measurement. Second, materiality. Third, magnification. Fourth, messaging. And fifth, management. So what do I mean by that? First, we got to measure. How many miles driven, that kind of thing? Miles driven, uh, even coming up with a carbon footprint calculation. Second, uh, materiality. Which one of those things matter most to environmental stakeholders and which matter most to the business? Third, of those things that are most material, how do we magnify the ones that are net positive, net contributors? And what do we do to mitigate or minimize the ones that are net negatives? 
forth messaging. First, to the corporation itself, what are the key metrics to, to monitor and manage to? Meaning persuading your bosses that this is something that they, <laughs> they should continue employing you. Right. Well, and it, it, may, it falls right into the fifth one, which is management. Ultimately, what you'd hope for over the long run is that you would manage to the key metrics and incentivize the organization to pursue optimal uh, outcomes for those key metrics, uh, so long as they're in line with what uh, what shareholders expect and, and what, what's good for the business. Ashley Willens, you study how people make trade-offs between time and money and the efficacy of incentives to change behavior. What does your research suggest would be the best incentives ride-hailing companies should provide to get more people to use their carpooling services to reduce the number of cars on the road? Yeah, and I will level set expectations here by saying that I think I know more about what doesn't work than what works to shift people's behavior in terms of getting them to use these ride-sharing platforms and to commute to work together. I'm a behavioral scientist, and I'm really interested in understanding how can we encourage people to engage in behaviors that are good for their own health and happiness and also have some positive externality for society, giving to charity, is an example of, of a topic that I've studied, but also how to get people to engage in pro-environmental behaviors. And so this is how I became interested in this topic. We know that being stuck in traffic behind the wheel is one of the worst ways to spend one's time. Uh, it's the most negative for stress, um, has been linked to higher incident rates of cardiovascular disease and it's, you know, one of the worst activities for happiness. So really, I, I come at this from this question of, you know, well, carpooling and, and ride sharing, that seems great, solves all kinds of problems. Um, and so I really became interested in this question because I want to help people help themselves and then help the environment in the process. Um, so trying out, you know, some of these small, simple interventions to get people out of driving alone and maybe taking these you know, ride-share platforms or carpooling together is sort of what my student, Ariella Cristal, and I, I went about trying to do. So we ran a series of seven field experiments with 70,000 employees at a large airport. It was well-connected to transit. There was already a car pooling service in place. I think maybe the downfall here is that they also had parking uh, that was free. And so we tried every behavioral science tool in the book. We made personalized ride plans. This is how you could commute using transit. This is how you could commute using carpool. Here's their three perfect matches for you if you want to ride to work with someone that you haven't met before. We even provided free transit passes for a week. And across seven field experiments with 70,000 employees, we were able to produce no meaningful impact. So they were still... Uh, driving alone after we tried all of these things. Um, so I, I, I can tell you that some of these small behavioral interventions that have worked in so many policy areas, retirement savings, tax compliance, does not seem to be a profitable pathway, at least in the context that we studied for changing people's commuting behaviors. Well, that's uplifting. Good way to start the conversation. Adam Gromis, some research has found that ride-hailing services have actually led to more traffic and less transit use in major American cities. A professor I was just talking to was telling me how his students, who always used to walk, now often take Uber. Do you have any evidence that Uber or Lyft reduce the number of cars on the road? Is that a goal of your company? 
And how is Uber Pool doing compared to, say, UberX? It's a big question in there, David. Um, well, it, it's, partly it gets back to what Professor Willens was talking about with the challenge of addressing uh, the incumbency of the personal car. It's just a wonderful way to get around and it has been for more than 100 years. Um, we're really new to providing transportation technology to the transportation sector. In, in that regard, we've learned a little from, from experience. And we learned a lot more from looking at the history of transportation, particularly as it's unfolded in, in uh, both developed and, uh, and less developed markets. But let me, let me just give you a for instance. So in, in the United States, uh, the best government data from the last two years or so puts the combined usage of taxi, limo services, ride hailing, car sharing altogether at something around a half a percent of all passenger miles traveled, all, all the miles that all of us do. Public transit, buses, trains, uh, light rail, things like that is around 3%. How, how does that, how do those figures translate into urban areas? Because of course we are, uh, you know, we, we have vast stretches of areas where Uber and Lyft don't operate. Uh, we ha we're a big country, but in metropolitan areas, these services are ubiquitous and we're, and I, imagine they're much higher than a half a percent. Right. Well, and, and they are. They're three times higher. They're one and a half percent or so. One, 1. 1.7 is according to the, the same government data from the last two years. So if you zoom into major urban areas and, and even highly urbanized areas of less dense cities, you'll find uh, taxi, uh, ride hailing, use car sharing, use right, right around less than 2%. Uh, and even as you zoom into those areas, uh, the lowest you'll see a personal car usage drop to about 75% or so. And if you zoom out to the whole United States, more than 90% of all people miles traveled is in personal cars. It's hard to understate the incumbency of driving yourself. But just to come back to one of the questions I was asking, is a goal of Uber to actually reduce uh, congestion? Is it... Uh, to reduce miles driven? I mean, is that is that an operating mission? Congestion hurts our business. It's in our best interest to try and be mindful of what we can do to drive efficiency. You know, the, the business really started with, with what can we do to add efficiency to an otherwise overbuilt system of mobility. It's about 1.2 billion cars in the world or so. And there's usually one to two people in the car. So if you consider a four to five seat car, that means at any given moment, there's about 100 million to 200 million empty seats just moving around the world. So the basic insight of the business many years ago was to say, uh, what if you could push a button, grab one of those seats, go in your direction? And at this point, the question for us is to say, you know, what can we do to drive more efficiency with our technology? We recognize that for decades, VMT, vehicle miles traveled, have been painful for cities. If you look at 1970 compared to today, uh, the total vehicle miles traveled in the U.S. is more than three times what it was. And under the mobility-as-usual circumstance, we expect that to grow another three times by 2050. So the question is, what can we do uh, with our technology to uh, provide more of what cities want, the movement of people, lower emissions, while minimizing the need to move vehicles? Ashley Willens, what kind of policies should lawmakers be considering to either incent or coerce more sustainable practices such as carpooling by these ride-sharing services? I think that these data emphasize that behavioral interventions might be really challenging in and of themselves to shift commuter behavior. There's actually kind of formal research on, on what you were already mentioning 
that uh, people feel the sense of car pride, that we associate driving with high status and transit use with lower status, that when we think about driving, we think of freedom and autonomy and control. It's very easy and efficient. Um, my data really suggests that behavioral interventions aren't enough. And so where we have seen traction and movement is, one, when you take away the easy option. So in terms of organizations, they take away free parking. When you limit the number of spaces available for parking or you make it quite expensive, this seems to be an effective, uh, heavy-handed incentive for people to find alternative modes of transportation because driving becomes the harder, more expensive option. And might I add to that that there's good research to show that this is in cities' best interest, too. There's a, a fantastic researcher down at UCLA named Donald Shoup. And he's looked a lot at free parking. And uh, it costs cities greatly to offer free parking because there is an expense associated with all that space and to keep it there. Uh, and they're foregoing a lot of possible revenue. So free parking uh, is not only adds these inefficiencies that you're talking about, uh, but uh, it, it could be a thing that if, if changed uh, could be good for cities. Adam Gramis, it, it seems Uber is constantly battling with regulators. What are some areas where you might welcome regulation, if that is even conceivable, as part of an effort to reduce emissions across all ride-hailing services? Yeah, regulation is really important on a lot of these topics that we talk about because they're, they're multi-stakeholder problems. Um, I, I'm looking at two places right now which I think are, are leading or at the bleeding edge of, of policy innovation. First in California, they uh, just uh, Governor Brown, uh, when he was still governor last year, signed into legislation the Clean Mile Standard. This will require uh, Uber and Lyft and others in our category to provide enough information to the state in order to make transparent what our carbon emissions per passenger mile are. I think that's the right metric. It if done what right and if done thoughtfully can be compared across modes, it gives us all a, a great target to aim at and an option for finding ways to reduce it, either getting more people in each car or cleaning up each car or finding ways that we can reduce, uh, say, the empty miles that drivers need to do in an on-demand service to provide you with a car and a ride. Second is London. In London, uh, they have a road pricing scheme. They've had a congestion charge for years. So this has been world famous because it's one of the few cities in the world that is doing congestion charging. Now New York is. Uh, New York had just passed, uh, which is very exciting. And uh, in London, so for 10 years, they've done the congestion charge, meaning at, at peak hours of commute, you've got to pay, I think it's £11.50 to enter the, the central business district of London. Uh, now they're, created, they're adding to that an ultra low emission zone standard. Uh, if you drive a diesel car this year, you have to pay an additional £12.50 if it's at the same time as the congestion charge. But at all times, the, the emissions charge applies. Over time, they're going to ratchet that up and include more and more cars so that by sometime uh, in the next five years, you have to be driving a battery electric vehicle to not pay the charge. What they've done is they've sent a very strong signal to every user of a vehicle in London that says, look, we're going to pay for performance, basically. And um, Uber um, has, uh, over the last couple of years, supported road pricing schemes like that. They include all users. They send consumers a strong signal. Uh, this is how we're going to reward the good actors, and this is how those who are, who are contributing to impact are going to pay. Is congestion pricing something that would be beneficial economically for Uber? I mean, if you 
bar other people from taking cars, you maybe incent them to use your services if you're paying that price. Is that sort of part of the idea? Well, road pricing, just to be clear, a road pricing scheme would not necessarily bar anybody, but you're you're right to mention that, for instance, road pricing schemes are regressive in nature, so they tend to hurt those uh, of lower incomes and small businesses more disproportionately to others. And so it's really important that uh, policymakers consider um, safety nets and other other ways to support uh, low-income users and participants. That's really important for schemes like that, and we would be in support. Um, but generally speaking, it's good for our business to have a smart policy that rewards efficient movement. And we are confident that we can work hard to create good technology that drives efficiency. And it's a good thing to compete over efficiency. That's good for everybody. Ashley Willens, what are the pros and cons of the increasing reliance on ride-hailing services? Do you see this as a prelude to more people, especially in cities, giving up cars? Yeah, I mean, I do really think it, it, it depends on how positive people's experiences with the services are. So making the experience, this is something that we've been, so I have a, um, a several, like a set of research projects designed to make ride sharing, uh, carpooling platforms more fun, more social, um, more enjoyable. If something is feels good and people see the impact of it, that it's a fun social experience, they're more likely to do it again in the future and it creates these habitual feedback cycles. But I think in the absence of really figuring out both how to incentivize people enough to start using it and then make the experience positive enough that they're willing to not just drive alone in their cars, but coordinate with other people in their workplaces and in their communities. In the absence of really solving both of these issues, I think there is obviously the possibility that more of these sort of the, the increased availability of, of rides on the road, Uber, Lyft, others, just will create more cars on the road, more people driving from point A to point B alone and easier. So maybe they don't own cars, but maybe they're still contributing to the congestion problem nonetheless. And I wonder how that changes in a new world uh, without drivers. Adam, I understand Uber is banking on autonomous vehicles for its future, presumably with a fleet of electric vehicles. Can you tell us, is that true? Is that the plan? Is it electric vehicles? And can you sketch for us timetables for when you expect these changes to happen? And do you, do you foresee other innovations such as Uber drone flights or uh an Uber Hyperloop or something like that. Well, if you meet anybody that has a sketch of a timeline or uh, a drone timeline or whatever, let me know. I have lots of questions about the future to ask them and whatever crystal ball they may have. Um, I will say that um, uh, from a climate perspective, uh, there's been some fantastic research that has been led out of uh, UC Davis, the International, International Transport Forum, Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory and a few others who are asking the question, you know, what happens if if we do sharing technology like ride hailing and car sharing, other things like that, plus electrification, plus autonomous, wh where does that take us in the world of transportation? And it's really important that transportation has some new good ideas because I, I think you in, alluded to it earlier, David, uh, transportation is one of the most pernicious sectors from a climate standpoint. It's about uh, a quarter or more of the world's global carbon footprint. In the United States, it's the number one contributor. In Europe, it's the only sector we haven't decarbonized uh, since 1990. 
So it is a problematic sector and it needs good ideas. And so those researchers looked at shared plus electric plus autonomous and they forecasted into the future. And the results are, are remarkable, as much as 80% reduction in climate impact from transportation, and perhaps as much as a 90% reduction in the number of vehicles that would be needed to move all of us the same amount that we move today. That's amazing. And there's few other ideas that point to those levels of impact, of positive impact. Um, so as I consider uh, the varying ways in which we're seeing increasing electrification throughout the transportation system and increasing automation throughout the transportation system, these are generally good trends. As we consumers get used to these things like increasing sharing, sitting next to strangers, uh, which for those of us who have driven a personal car for a long time becomes a scary thing. It means that there's going to be some growing pains as we get there and we learn about that. A lot of the experiences that we're having and that others in the space are having today that researchers are having are measuring uh, operating things that are intended to be shared in a world built for personal use. Roads today, laws today, regulations today all assume we will all forever own a car and drive it ourselves, generally drive it alone. Cars are built by automakers, mostly for the driver. All the cool bells and whistles are right up there next to the driver driving wheel, and uh, the rest, everybody else is just a passenger. Uh, cars are not made for pooling today. Uh, most of the laws and regulations and incentives that are out there are not uh, imagining a world of shared use. Uh, curb design is not built for that. We have mostly free parking or uh, maybe paid parking. All of that's intended for a personal owner of a vehicle. So as we rethink what a shared world would look like, where we're going to share those vehicles, we're going to share seats next to one another, uh, we're going to electrify those vehicles and ultimately have increasing levels, levels of automation. It will take a redesign of all those things. And we'll need to look at things like consumer behavior. We find that... Um, for instance, in order to create pool and make that possible, we had to send very strong price signals. So pool is generally comes at a, a great discount. We know from experience that we need to discount it heavily in order to get people to use it. They're, the trade-off uh, for them in exchange for the lower price, of course, is they have to wait slightly more. They may have to walk a little bit, and uh, they have to sit next to a stranger. So in your estimate, is Uber and Lyft and other ride-hailing services, are they good for the environment or are they not at this point? I, I think we're on the right path. And I think uh, a shared future uh, of mobility uh, can be much more efficient than a personal uh, world of mobility that we've experienced for the last 100 years. And Ashley Willens, finally, as a behavioral scientist, what more do you think ride-hailing services could be doing to improve the environment? And do you see them as a part of the solution or part of our transportation woes? I mean, I think ha being new to the transportation demand management space, I see the potential also to echo your thoughts here for innovation. We need new ideas. We need rigorous experimental testing so that ride sharing can become part of the solution um, and to take up more market share, to create this shared world, this shared environment where we're thinking about coordinating our commutes in an effective and an efficient way. I think we have a lot uh, of room to move uh, toward that goal. But I, I have seen a lot of excitement and enthusiasm in this space for a lot of cross-talking between industry leaders and researchers, which I think is is relatively new in the space. Really, all of us are working together to try to, to make technology part of the solution and to use the best tools from behavioral science and other econometric methods to really address this critical challenge that affects all of us. And so I think 
when done right, ride-sharing services have a lot of potential, um, and we all need to work together to make these services more efficient and effective. You heard the word pernicious. That's the way Adam Gromis described the transportation sector as a whole in terms of its impact on the environment. Ride-sharing isn't enough, even with more electric vehicles on the road. Bike and scooter-sharing services have grown quickly as a means to solve the problem of the so-called last mile. That is, finding ways to encourage people to use public transportation by making it easier to get to and from a bus or train. But are these services working? And should regulators be encouraging more of these private efforts, or should they be doing more to control them? Joining us to discuss the future of urban transportation is Nicole Friedman, a former Olympic cyclist and bike czar of Boston who went on to become head of Boston Bikes and now serves as director of transportation in the Boston suburb of Newton. Nicole Friedman, for years, you were known as Boston's bike czar. You now have a broader portfolio after a sojourn in Seattle in a similar job. Tell us what your overarching goals are and what motivates you to do this sometimes politically fractious kind of work. So um, I think what I'm really focused on is is actually transportation's impact on climate change. So in this region, transportation, the transportation sector is the number one contributor to uh, emissions uh, and essentially climate change. Um, and, and so it's really what can we do with transportation to reduce those emissions and significantly. So not just you know, 5% or 10%, but how can we take those emissions and have them in the next decade, decade and a half? After working in different cities and on different coasts, can you tell us about some of the more novel ways cities are approaching these issues? For example, Chicago and Los Angeles, I believe, are working on prototypes of a hyperloop. Cities in India are experimenting with electric Vespas. What else is out there aside from segways and scooters? Well, it's less about the novel technology and more about doing it right. And there's a lot of cities that are exploring things that could be profoundly impactful. So New York City, I think, is the most exciting. They're working on a congestion charge. And there's nothing new about the thought of a congestion charge. I studied it back when I was in school. But you know, it is one of the single most powerful tools to get people out of their car to use any of the existing alternatives that we have, whether it's public transit, biking, bike share, scooters, scooter share, uh, you name it, congestion charge is probably the most powerful tool. Um, so hats off to New York City. Uh, Sacramento is taking the lead in everything electric vehicles and really answering that question. So they have a pilot EV car share out there that they're working on now. They're looking at EV buses. Uh, some, I think they're even looking at at autonomous EV buses on fixed routes. Um, so I think we'll see a lot coming out of there that'll inform us. I mean, you know, great questions. When we have a new development, how many EV charging spots should we have? What's the demand for EV charging in public locations, especially in the suburbs where people have driveways? What speed should we be installing and who are the users of these chargers? Um, Seattle, there's a city that didn't have public transit really 20, 30 years ago. Um, and they are taking the lead really on buses. And, you know, it's the fastest growing city in the country. And what's phenomenal about that is despite being the fastest growing city, they had no increase in vehicle trips. So all of those people that are coming in, they're getting around without driving, essentially. And a, a big part of that is just this phenomenal bus system uh, where they're really making rapid transit for busing. Um, and then also the fare structure for companies and for the city uh, really gets people to use the bus. 
What needs to be done in cities that isn't being done? Measures that could dramatically reduce transportation emissions enough that we could see a substantial reduction in the next decade. I th- I think there's there's an answer and it's an obvious answer. It's just whether we have the political will, and it's it's related to pricing. So I always say, as a society, we've been reasonably okay at the carrots. So we can put in bike lanes and encourage people to bike. Uh, there's things called transportation demand management where we encourage people to pay take public transit by maybe subsidizing their passes a little bit. What we haven't been so good at in the direction that we need to go is is the sticks. Um, So when I talk about pricing, that really means charging the full cost of driving and putting that on the driver, the full cost of all of the externalities. And, you know, I used to joke when I was at Boston Bikes, I said, look, if I could do anything for biking, I would never build a bike lane. I would have a congestion charge, uh, a gas tax. I would remove all the parking. And if any parking remains, I'd charge an arm and a leg for it. Um, But I guarantee you. That made you very popular in the city, I'm sure. (laughs) Well, I always followed it up. I will never win anything. You know, I'd never, you know, get into an elected position. (laughs) Um, but, But the reality is, if strategically we did um, figure out a way to price parking appropriately uh, and price driving appropriately, we can dramatically reduce emissions and driving almost overnight. So again, New York City, the congestion but, charge. But where you live in a place like Newton, which is a kind of mix of urban and suburban, you know, people need cars. They have kids. They have groceries to get. I mean, there are legitimate needs for cars. And you know, what What more can be done to try to reduce their emissions? Yeah. So number one, you still do pricing and you take the money and uh, you put it straight into public transit. And, and it's so interesting. You go to any transportation conference and we're looking at all of this new technology, whether it's the scooters, the Hyperloop, the autonomous vehicles. And unilaterally, everyone agrees that public transit is still the most efficient and best way to move the most number of people. So Price driving accordingly, take the money and the revenue from that and put it to public transit. And then the other big factor is land use development and how you develop. Um, and it, there's a really great example in in Newton. We have Needham Street, um, and there's uh, about seven, the potential for about 7 million square feet of developed land. And it's, you know, it's really underdeveloped right now uh, with, you know, one-story one uh, buildings and suburban shopping mall style. Um, we have a development that's coming in that is about 1.5 million square feet. So biggest development in the history of Newton. And they're calling it transit-oriented development. And But there's the T is missing. <laughs> you know, uh, literally the T. It's 1.1 miles to get to the T. Um, so they're proposing a number of shuttles. And, and as we were talking about Needham Street, we said, look, if there were a T-stop right behind that new development, uh, there would be no worry about you know, an increase in vehicle trips. In fact, you probably would decrease vehicle trips for the whole area. So you need uh, dense development that's mixed use that's near transit. Um, And you do that and you can, you know, dramatically reduce the percentage of trips. But yes, if you live in a rural area uh, or an area that's less dense, it's a lot harder. And now a story from Mike Toffel professor of environmental management at Harvard Business School. We've seen such huge demand for ride-sharing around the world, but we don't know yet what the net climate impact will be because it's a complicated analysis. It depends on how much ride-sharing is pulling people out of their cars, off of mass transit, or from biking or walking. It also depends on how popular carpool services like Uber Pool become 
which can get as many as four customers in different locations to carpool, which can dramatically reduce their emissions. So the question becomes, given we're living in the climate change era, what do we do with this information? As business leaders and as consumers, there are a few key things to look for. First, how quickly can we move vehicles from fossil fuels toward electrification and batteries? We're seeing some progress in electric vehicles, or EVs, with cars, Tesla being the most obvious example. The recent news of the partnership between Uber and EVgo to promote the shift to EVs among rideshare drivers is a good step in this direction. We're also seeing some progress with battery-powered city buses, with companies like Proterra and many others. But from a climate perspective, we need EVs to be powered by carbon-free electricity, which means we need to increasingly shift our electricity grids to renewables and maybe nuclear. Overall, the trajectory to get there is higher fuel efficiency in cars. Shifting from fossil fuels to batteries is farther off for other modes of transportation, but we're still seeing investment in some progress with next-generation biofuels powering shipping and aviation. The U.S. Navy is actually at the forefront of this shift. We're also seeing R&D in battery-powered ships and airplanes. With automobiles, the shift to EVs will take time. And meanwhile, we should watch how policymakers and car companies engage on promoting higher fuel efficiency. In the U.S., there's an ongoing debate about how aggressive regulation should be to require car companies to increase the fuel efficiency of their vehicles. California had already passed fuel efficiency standards that would increase pretty aggressively, and some other states have adopted that standard. And when the Trump administration recently announced it wanted to prohibit California from doing that, the auto industry pushed back to argue in favor of maintaining California's standards. That's quite a change because these same auto companies have traditionally been fighting against higher fuel efficiency standards, but are now fighting for these higher standards that they already agreed to when the Obama administration bailed them out from nearly going bankrupt. If the transportation sector is going to take climate change seriously, we need to look for both companies and governments to take several actions. First, to promote higher fuel efficiency, Second, to accelerate the shift to electrification and batteries along with a greener electricity grid. And third, to promote climate-neutral biofuels. We're seeing some activity on each of these fronts, but to really bend the curve to address the climate crisis, we need to see a lot more. That's it for Climate Rising today. In our next episode, we'll look at the impact of agriculture on climate change. In fact, over the last 200 million years, plants and organisms have evolved so that there are microorganisms that protect plants against pretty much every stress that plant might encounter, whether it's drought or sort of environmental stresses, or whether it's disease or insects. They're already in our food supply. All we have to do is concentrate them and apply them where the stresses are to be able to improve the yields of plants, protect them against stress in a, in a healthier and more sustainable way. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, David Abel. This is Climate Rising, podcast produced by Harvard Business School. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please leave us a review. We appreciate the feedback.